Scripture comes from Exodus 1, 8 to 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, then join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks, who speaks to our actual lived out realities. Father, we want to hear what you have to say to us, therefore, this morning. Would you, would you help us to, to receive these words as, as the very words of God? And would they have a profound impact on the way we live and and in the way we trust you, God. Father, we pray for our kids as well who are learning about you. Father, would you please speak to them? Would they not only come to know about you, but would they truly know you as Lord and Savior and friend? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Emile Caillé was born in France in 1894. He served during World War I in the French Army, and after that, he moved to the United States where he was a professor of French literature and philosophy. Uh, Cahier grew up, he was a very brilliant mind, what he called a naturalistic education. He actually says, until the age of 23, he had actually never even stumbled across a Bible. He, he lived under the assumption that there was no God. Uh, one day, while in World War I, his friend was shot and killed. Shortly after, he, he, he was shot in, in the arm, and he experienced what, what he called a, an ex- existential crisis. 
He, he was all of a sudden on the search to find out if there was any meaning in life at all. What's, what's the point of all this? After the war, Kaye returned to his books, but, but this time he said it was all different. He says this. He said, I returned to my books, but they were no longer the same books. Neither was my motivation the same motivation. Reading in literature and philosophy, I find myself probing in depth for meaning. During long night watches in foxholes, I had in a strange way been looking, I must say it, however strange it may sound, for a book that would understand me. Some, something to understand him. Something to help him realize that that he was seen. Something to help him understand that there actually was a greater purpose in life. Except no matter how hard he tried to to find for this book that would understand him, he, he never found it. So what he decided to do is compile his own book. He carried around a little journal with him, and any time he would stumble across a a quote or a section in philosophy that he found would would speak to him, he he would write that down. And so he kind of collated this this book of his own. At the end of finishing this book, he he read it, and he said it didn't do him anything. He found it unpersuasive. It carried no strength of persuasion, and it left him dejected. So one day, his wife came home from a walk, and his wife, anyways, it's a long story, but brought home a Bible. And she began to apologize because he had told her that they were, their household would have nothing ever to do with religion. So she's beginning to apologize for bringing home this Bible, and instead of rebuking her, he, he grabs that book and, and runs. And he runs into his office where he begins to read. He, he, this is what happens. He, he, he puts it this way. He says, a Bible, you say? Where is it? Show it to me. I've never seen one before. I I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened and and I read and I read and I read now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder and suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. While it seemed absurd, To speak of a book, understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. Uh, this morning, we, we're continuing in our series in the book of Exodus. What, what we said last week is that Exodus is in many ways part two of the story. It's part two of God's promise. So in, in Genesis, God gave a promise to Abraham to, to multiply him, to, to give him offspring. This, this offspring would bear the image of God. They would spread out into this world. And not only would God give Abraham offspring, he would give him land. He would give them an opportunity to expand the Garden of Eden where they would live out God's way in God's presence. And so what we saw in the first few verses of Exodus last week is God beginning to fulfill that promise. This week, what we see is that God accomplishes his plans 
but he doesn't always do so in ways we expect him to do so. He doesn't always do so in ways we'd like him to do so. But when God sets forth to accomplish his purposes, those purposes are often met with opposition from the devil. And so as a result of that, life can be painful and hard and disorienting. And so the verses we just heard read are in many ways absolutely horrific. It's hard to read and it's hard to imagine an evil and an oppression like that. And yet, I am so thankful for passages like this in the Bible. Because they're real, they're they're uncensored, they're grimy, but that's my life. That's our lived out experience. Uncensored and messy and, and grimy. And the Bible doesn't speak to a, a fairy tale world, to, to people living in, in Neverland, right? This, this is, this is a, a real text dealing with real pain and, and, and real suffering. This is, this is a book that understands us and can, can speak into our problems. And so what we're going to see here is oppression and, and hardship, and yet there is a God who, even though he doesn't bring his people away from hardship, he does bring them through it. And he's there with them in the midst of it, and he comes out victorious on the other side. As great as evil can be, the Bible shows us a God who is greater still. A God who is victorious and who will not be prevented from keeping his promises. So I want us to see two things this morning. I want to see oppression in faithfulness, and I want to see faithfulness in oppression. Oppression in faithfulness and faithfulness in oppression in the hopes that we might see the people of God struggling and yet see a God who cares for them so that in the midst of our own struggles and sufferings, we would also cling to the God who can care for us. So here we go. Firstly, oppression in faithfulness. Uh, I said earlier that it's, it's hard to imagine this type of wickedness except actually what we find here has in many ways been used as an instruction manual throughout history again and again to actually completely eliminate a people group from the face of the earth. So there's kind of these five steps that Pharaoh takes. We've seen this in history. The first step is to create a narrative of fear. Create a narrative of fear. Look look at verses 8 to 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So so Pharaoh begins by kind of disseminating this lie about how terrible things might get if this people group becomes too big and too vast and there's too many of them. Right? We, we might lose our jobs, Pharaoh says. They might, they might take away our, our livelihood. They might even take away our life. I mean, maybe, they, maybe they join our enemies and they actually attack us. I mean, can you imagine how bad things would be then? That God actually promised to, to, to use his people as a blessing in the world. But Pharaoh goes, no, no, no. We should fear. We, 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 we should be afraid. 
You, you make them the other, right? You, you, they're, the, they're the problem, them, those people, and, and they're the danger. So, so he creates a narrative fear, and then afterwards, you make life difficult. You make life difficult. Look, look at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, Pithom and Ramses were in the northeast section of Egypt, kind of where um, the Nile begins. And what's happening is this is where Egypt would have been vulnerable to attack. So if enemies wanted to attack Egypt, that's likely where they would have um, come from. And so what Pharaoh very brilliantly does, he goes, you know, you go up there and you build these store cities that kind of would be like military outposts. They would store grain and, and wine and military weapons. And so there'd be this added protection in that area, but also it served the purpose of wearing out the Israelites. This would have been hard labor. He sent these men far away and, and split them up from their, their families and, and their wives. You're making them tired. Hopefully when you, when you come back, you're, you're too tired to keep on having children. So he's spreading them thin. He's trying to, trying to make life difficult. And then step three is, is you, you actually physically oppress them. Verse 13 says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This, this language of um, working ruthlessly um, carries undertones of, of violence. This, this is like beatings, whipping and, and, and flogging. The Egyptians have turned the Israelites into their slaves. And the Egyptian master was given permission. Pharaoh says, go ahead. Physically abuse them. Press them under your thumb. Show them who's actually in charge there. The hope would be, again, they're so weak and so wounded, they wouldn't have the energy to fight with other enemies if they were to come in. And they would be so demoralized that they wouldn't dare think about bringing up children in this world. Crush them. Step four, though, he goes one step further, is to kill them secretly. Kill them secretly. Verse 15 and 16 says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, uh, if it is a daughter, she shall live. So, so, so Pharaoh's trying to kill them from, from the inside out. So he threatens the midwives. When you're in the delivery room or on the birthing stool, if it's a baby boy, kill it. Just kill it. I don't, I don't really want the rest of my people knowing that this is happening. You know, there's probably some Egyptians who are, are friendly towards the Hebrew people. So just do it secretly. If it's just a boy. Just make, it, just make it seem like it's an accident. Like maybe, maybe it happened in the womb Something bad happened, just a complication. Just, just kill the baby boys. Just do it, just do it quietly. Don't, don't let it go viral. Just, just, just secretly. And, and what this is, is it's a devaluing of all life. 
One, it's a devaluing of the women because Pharaoh goes, they're not a threat. Not really worried about them. Now, the irony to that is that it's actually these midwives, these women, and three others, as we'll come to see, who led to the overthrow of Egypt. The irony there. But also the boys. Who cares? Just, just we don't want them. Get rid of them. They're, they're not worthy of life. And then when that doesn't work, the last step is just outright murder. So verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What, what does the king of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, do? How, how does he use his power? To kill the little Hebrew boys. And this is a command. This is an edict. This is coming from the top down to everyone in the nation. You see a Hebrew boy crawling around, playing. You pick him up. You, you take him away from his family. You throw him into the Nile. You watch him suffocate and drown to the bottom. of. Kill him. This is the worst evil. This is, this is the, the height of evil. So a few things I want us to see here. Four, four things. Four things. Um, Pharaoh not only represents in this section the height of evil, he's also the essence of evil. He's the essence of evil. Um, throughout Exodus, not, not just in this section, but, but as we go on, what we're going to see is that um, Pharaoh is kind of a picture. He, he's being portrayed as a serpent-like picture. He, he's, being, he's, he's modeling his actions after the, the serpent, after Satan, who, who we first see actually in the Garden of Eden. Pharaoh's actions are reminiscent of Satan's actions. Uh, Peter Enns puts it this way. He says, Pharaoh represents not only a force hostile to God's people by enslaving them, but a force hostile to God himself. The Egyptian king is presented as an anti-God figure. He repeatedly places himself in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. And so look at what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh comes wearing a serpent on his crown. That would have been the typical headdress of a pharaoh, image of a snake, front and center. And then what does he do? He instills fear and doubt, just like the serpent did in Genesis. Things aren't going to go well for you. God clearly th doesn't want us to, to flourish. And then what does he do? He, he secretly goes after the woman, ju just like the serpent in the garden went after Eve and targeted her. And then he uses de deceit to try and keep God from fulfilling his plans. Right? Just, just secretly. Just cunningly. Just, just, just spreading a lie. Manipulating the situation. Going behind the scenes to, to subvert God's plans. And so what we're going to see in the rest of Exodus is actually a battle. Uh, the, the first um, half of Exodus is in many ways a battle between God and Pharaoh. And the question is, is who, who's going to win? 
Who's going to win this battle? Who will come out victorious? Who is worth trusting? Who, who actually has the power to save? And, and who, are, who should we rather serve? Pharaoh or the God of Israel who made all things and has called us into relationship with him? Pharaoh is the essence of evil. Uh, the second thing I want us to see is that um, Satan hates children. Satan hates children. This is not the only time um, Satan will try to destroy little baby boys. In the first century, um, Satan, through King Herod, also ushered a decree that in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region, every boy that's two years and under should be murdered. Just take him take them from their parents' hands, and, and, and kill them. And there's nothing they can do about it. And, and um, the reason Satan hates children is because children are a symbol of hope. Children are a symbol of hope. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've heard um, people talk like this. Uh, I've certainly read things like this where they go, man, I would never, ever dare. I wouldn't do it to my children. I just, that would be cruel of me to bring them into a dumpster fire of a world like this, right? With all that's going on, that would just be cruel to raise children in this environment. Um, I don't, I don't know, maybe you've heard that. The, the Christian proclamation by, by having children is actually a declaration that this is not the way things will always be. It, it's actually, there's an optimism and, and a hopefulness that, that says, Yes, this world is broken. Yes, this is not what we long for. And yet, God still has a plan. And God is continuing to work out his purposes. And it may not happen in my generation, but God has not given up on humanity. And it may happen in our children's lives, and if not in their children's lives, then the generation after them, or the generation after them. But God is still working out a plan in this world. Listen to Stanley Howard he, he puts it this way. He says, he says, we have children as a witness that the future is not left up to us and that life, even in a threatening world, is worth living. And not because children are the hope of the future, but because God is the hope of the future. The future doesn't start and end with me. And there's a humility to that. But we're saying children are a symbol of the faithfulness of God. God's not done yet. Now, I'm um, here. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to push this this way. I'm going to take this over here because this is not really in the Bible. Um, but this is not in this text. But I, I just need to say these, uh, these things to us this morning. Um, today, in, in Western culture... I think there has been a specific attack in our society today, particularly on little boys. Now, this is not always the way it's been. Girls, little girls have borne the brunt of, of society's prejudice and devaluing for a long period of history. But right now, the pendulum has swung to the other side, and I don't want us to be okay with that. I, I want us to... to to show dignity and value to both male and female, to both little boys and little girls. Um, 
in her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, and Nancy Piercy talks about um, kind of this accepted hostility towards men. She, she gives a number of examples. Um, in the Washington Post, they ran an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Under the assumption that we should. Um, there are t-shirts printed, So Many Men and So Little Ammunition. There's a title. Uh, these are some titles of books. I Hate Men, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? One of the quotes from those books is this, talking about healthy masculinity is talking about healthy cancer. Um, men today are more likely than women to be homeless, suffer from mental illness, to be imprisoned, to commit suicide, to be murdered, to commit murder, or to be addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, the New Scientist uh, uh, Medical Journal says that being male is now the single largest predictor of early death. You want to know if you're likely to die early, earlier than you should? Be a man. Men are less likely to earn bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and doctoral degrees. Those men who do go to college are vastly outperformed by their female counterparts. And all of this starts when they're boys. It starts when they're young. Even in kindergarten, author Michael Thompson says, classrooms are often set up to reward girls who are typically advanced in verbal skills and in fine motor skills. And then she gives this quote. Girl behavior becomes the gold standard and boys are treated like defective girls. Boys are treated like defective girls. And I, I, um, I remember reading, reading this in, in, that, in her book. And my wife's six months pregnant and we don't know what our fourth child is, whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. And people would ask me if, if, if I want another boy or if I, if I want a girl. And I, I honestly was excited for both until I read this. And all of a sudden, I just was like, Stephanie, I want a boy. For God's sake. And I don't even mean that in a blasphemous way. I want to raise a boy for God's sake so that he might grow up to be a godly man who would show this world what it looks like to sacrificially lay down his life for those he loves. Now again, please hear me. Man, next door, outside of this gym, is an incredible opportunity before us. There are some 40-plus children in this church. Man, we have an opportunity to say, not just to the boys, but to the girls and to this watching generation, look, God's not done yet. God has a plan, and he's working it out. And if it doesn't happen right now, it might happen through our kids' lives. And we want to raise up these kids so that they might bear the image of Christ, so that when the world looks at them, they might see Jesus in them. Now, I want to raise up godly men and godly women who love the Lord and who are trusting him and say, he's worthy of following. He's the one I want to trust. Satan hates children. And we have a wonderful opportunity to say that God loves you. Thirdly, I'm going to bring this back now. Um, thirdly, what we see from Pharaoh's brutality toward Israel is that godliness doesn't exclude us from hardship. Godliness doesn't exclude us from hardship. Um, 
oppression comes to those who are being faithful. Listen to these ver- uh, uh, verses in Genesis 46. And God spoke to Israel in visions on the night and said, so Jacob, Jacob, that's another name for Israel, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I'm the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. You know who it was who told the nation of Israel to go to Egypt? God. Israel is being obedient here. They're faithfully living out God's commands in their life. Go to Egypt. And yet in Egypt, they experience incredible hardship. If you are suffering right now, it is not necessarily because you've sinned. We we live in a broken world. We live in a world stained by sin. And because of that, we experience hardship even in the midst of faithfulness. Actually, sometimes specifically because we're being faithful. One of the things that that, that Satan wants to do is actually specifically target those who are trusting in the Lord. The devil would love to take someone and turn them to to bring suffering into their lives so that they would go, maybe God's not following. Maybe, Maybe I should walk away. Maybe God's not trustworthy. And then Satan rejoices and cheers. God, he didn't think you were good enough. Jesus, she didn't think you were worth following after all. And so the reason I'm trying, I want to bring this to our attention is so that we be on guard, so that, that, that we be prepared, that this wouldn't surprise us than when hardship comes to our, to, into our lives. We, we should take up the armor of God in, in order to fight against the enemy and his schemes. Right? Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul will ultimately say, but against Satan and his demons. That, that's who's trying to destroy us. So we shouldn't be surprised when a Oppression comes in the midst of faithfulness. But lastly, I want us to see from this section that is as great as Pharaoh is, as great as Satan's schemes are at, at trying to destroy the people of God, they cannot stop God from keeping his promises. God is still greater yet. Look, look at these uh, verses 9 and 11 and 9 to 11 and 12. He says, that, therefore, sorry, verse 9, and he said to his people, okay, behold, this is Pharaoh talking. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and escape from the land. So therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But then verse 12 we read, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And then again, verse 15 and 16 and 20, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. A terrible oppression. And yet, verse 20 says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. Oppression, and yet God overcomes. Oppression again, and God overcomes again. Look, there's no suffering too great that God cannot overcome in your life. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard in the moment. Little boys still died 
Hebrews were treated as slaves and flogged and whipped and treated like dirt, like cattle. Doesn't, doesn't make it any harder in the moment. And yet in the end, God was victorious. As, as scary as Pharaoh seems, he's just an instrument in God's hands. In, in, Gen- and in Exodus 4, there's this scene where... Um, God's going to call Moses to, to go back to Egypt to, to, in order to, to confront Pharaoh and, and bring out the people of Israel from Egypt. And, and Pharaoh goes, God, I'm, I'm too scared. Man, that's Pharaoh you want me to go up against. I can't, I can't do this. And so God tells Pharaoh, okay, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want to, take, I want to take the staff in your hand and just throw it on the ground. And so Pharaoh, uh, Moses drops it on the ground, and the staff becomes a snake. And, and Moses, it literally said, says was afraid, and he ran away. So he's like, ah, it's a, it's, a, it's a snake. And then God goes, pick it up. Pick up the snake. And so he's like, okay, it became a snake. Maybe it can do something interesting. And he grabs it by the tail, and he becomes a staff again. This is what God's telling Moses. As scary as Pharaoh seems, as scary as that snake is, he's actually just an instrument in my hand. You can pick him up by the tail and, and wield them for your own purposes. As great as the sufferings and oppressions are, as great as the pains are that you might be experiencing right now, God can use them for good. They're not outside of his control. He can use them to make you more like Jesus and ultimately bring about a greater good. We see oppression in faithfulness, Secondly, we see faithfulness in oppression. Faithfulness in oppression. Um, look at verses 15 and following again. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, so when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birthstool, if it's a son, you shall kill them. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh tried the hard labor route. That didn't work, so he's just going to cure the Jewish problem by trying to scare these midwives to, to turn on their own and to turn on their God. Look at, look at how the midwives respond. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So then verse 18 says, So, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, It's probably been a little bit of time, Pharaoh might have been walking around his empire and goes, I'm seeing a whole bunch of Hebrew children, little boys crawling on the ground. So he calls the midwives back and goes, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. In the midst of great oppression, we see incredible faithfulness. And this is actually what God, God calls us to, to, to faithfulness in the midst of oppression, in the midst of suffering. God calls us to trust him. Don't, don't budge. Hold, hold fast to your convictions and just keep on going. Just obey and, and do what's right. Now, we might think, um, man, there's no way I can do what those midwives did. No way. And on one hand, um, sure, 
Yes, absolutely, what they did is amazing. Um, they stood against Pharaoh, the, the one who could have just taken their lives like that. It, it took incredible bravery and, and courage, right? If, if they said no and Pharaoh caught them, Pharaoh's not probably not just going to make an example of them, right? He's probably not just going to kill them, probably also their families, maybe all the other midwives. There's not just two midwives in, in Israel, right? These probably were the leaders of the midwives. Kill, we're going to kill all the midwives and probably their families. You don't mess with Pharaoh. Pharaoh might have made them an example. And so absolutely incredible courage. But also ordinary. Um, what, what, what did the midwives do? Their job. They were experts at this. They've probably delivered thousands of babies, right? Israel's popping out babies like bunnies pop out babies, right? They're, they're experts at this. They just, they've done this over and over and over again. And so in a way, all they're doing is the ordinary. Just keep going. These weren't um, military leaders. These weren't leaders of like a political movement, they didn't all of a sudden come up with some elaborate plan to, to overthrow the empire. All that God called them to do was just be faithful in their job. Just keep on doing the ordinary. So absolutely, it takes great courage sometimes to be faithful in the midst of hardship. But also, sometimes it's just very ordinary. Just keep going. Just, just keep trusting the Lord. Just, just keep reading your Bible. Just do your job. Just keep raising your children. Just keep pointing them to Jesus. Just keep sharing your faith. Just, just do the ordinary. And the result is the salvation of a, nat- a nation. President Zelensky once said, there are no small matters in a great war. In a great war, in a great battle of Pharaoh against God, there's no small matters. All those little actions add up and God uses them. If there were no midwives, there's no baby boys. If no, no baby boys, there's no Israel. If there's no Israel, there's no promise of God. Pharaoh thought the boys were the ones who were the threat to the nation and it were the midwives all along. And do you know Pharaoh's name? No, you don't. You, you don't know his name. Actually, scholars aren't even certain which Pharaoh this was. But you know the midwives' names. Shifra and Pua. Written down for all of history to, to, to remember them. But Pharaoh, he's just an instrument in God's hands. Ordinary. Ordinary faithfulness and obedience. That's what God calls us to. Now, again, ordinary is not easy and it's not always simple. Because look at what happens in verse 18 and 19 again. Um, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And then the midwives said to Pharaoh, they're about to lie here. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Man, um, I don't want to say women are women, but I don't think there's anything different here. And they, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They're lying. Now, it it. Is that okay? What, what, is that all right? Not, it's not simple. 
Now, uh, Christian ethicists have typically tried to list three types of lies. Maybe this is helpful. (laughs) There's three types of ways we can lie. Okay, Uh, the first one is, this is helpful, the malicious lie. The malicious lie. This is a lie for personal gain. It seeks our own benefit and it harms the other person. That's it. The malicious lie is always bad. Then there's the jocular or what's known as the joking lie. This is a lie that aims to amuse. It's friendly. It can be funny and humorous. So let's say you're throwing a surprise birthday and you go, hey, Come on over. Nothing weird happening at my house. Just, just come. Very ordinary, chill evening. Small, small little thing. And all of a sudden, there's a surprise birthday, and they're they've you you got them. Now, um, that's the joking lie, a, a jocular lie. That that one might be okay. Now, sometimes though, it's not good. Let's say you're like surprising them. You're like, hey, come over here. I, there's nothing behind my back, and then you like have a pie and you pie them in the face. That's, that's, that's not a funny uh, lie. Um, maybe it's funny to you. It's not okay, though, because it seeks your own advantage. It seeks to make yourself look good at, at their expense. But the third type of lie is what's been called the necessary lie. This is a lie that deceives for the sake of protecting and caring for someone else. Now, Christians throughout history have actually disagreed on whether or not that's okay or not. Good Christians are are on both sides. I think that it's actually acceptable. Few reasons. Um, One, there's no indication anywhere in our text that the midwives did something wrong. There's no indication that they sinned here. God God doesn't ever rebuke them. Actually, in fact, the contrary is true. He, He rewards them. In verse 21, it says he gives them families. Likely, um, midwives often were a little bit older. Often, they were, un- they were unable to have children of their own. And so God goes, here, I'm going to bless you with children because of your faithfulness, because you lied to Pharaoh. Now, why, why, why do I talk about all this? Just to say that sometimes faithfulness isn't simple. And I understand it would be so nice to just have this black and white, right? Just for the sake of explaining to our kids, right? Just never lie, kids. Um, sometimes there's a good reason to lie. That's, that's a hard thing to, to explain to others. It's a hard thing for ourselves to navigate. And yet, I think the, the point is, most importantly, God's after our heart. First and foremost, God's after our heart. And so we, there's this, this necessary wisdom, this coming before him that goes, God, I want to honor you. You show me how to live it. It's not, it's not clear. And, and that's what God's after. Now, um, now, there is a principle here, though, that, that should dictate the way we live our lives. It's fear. It's fear. Look at, look at verse 17 and 21 again. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And again, in verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Fear the Lord. That, that's what should dictate our actions. Now, everyone in this section, um, everyone, period, all of our lives are in some ways uh, motivated by fear. Pharaoh's afraid. Ph- Pharaoh fears his kingdom being destroyed. 
Pharaoh fears his influence being taken from him. Pharaoh fears the perception of his people. Pharaoh fears his own safety. Pharaoh's driven by fear. And the same is true of the midwives. The midwives are, fear their loss of their livelihood, fear their lives, fear the lives of their families. But their greatest fear is a fear of the Lord. That's what God calls us to. What, 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 is it, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We're, we're landing the plane here. To fear the Lord is to live as though he's watching. It's to recognize that he sees everything. To fear the Lord is to live in awe of him. We're, we're amazed at his greatness and power and wisdom and love. To fear the Lord is to live to please him because he's wise and powerful and all-loving and great. To fear the Lord is to fear judgment and discipline because his ways are best and we don't want to disappoint him. To fear the Lord is to live with a recognition that above all else, we are in his hands. The midwives ultimately feared the Lord. They said, they thought the worst that Pharaoh can do is kill them. But that would be nothing compared to standing before an all-holy God and giving an account of what they would have done otherwise. So what is it that you fear? What, what, what motivates the way you live? Maybe you fear not having enough, and that leads to selfishness and lack of generosity. Maybe it's your fear of people's perception that, that keep you from, from sharing the message of Jesus with others. Maybe it's a fear of suffering that, that prevents you from entrusting your children to the Lord. Maybe it's a fear of injustice that keeps you from forgiving that person who hurt you. Let me urge you, have a greater fear. Fear the Lord. But why? What, why, why him and not Pharaoh? Right? Because in, in verse 21 and 22, okay, so because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. But then Pharaoh just comes back once more. Then Pharaoh commanded his people, okay, the midwives aren't going to kill the little boys. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Just when it seemed like things were going to be okay, Pharaoh utters his worst decree yet. So why, why fear the Lord? Why trust the Lord? Here's why. Because we don't just have a book that understands us. We have a God that understands us. Pharaoh used all of his might. All of Pharaoh's strength and wisdom was spent on killing people. And yet how does God use all of his might? By identifying with people. God comes down in the person of Jesus and actually lives and suffers among us. He, he understands exactly what we're going with. He identifies with the weak and the vulnerable. God never asks his people to endure something that he is unwilling to himself endure. And so God says his son to die. Not just in the Nile, but on the cross. Jesus was afflicted. He, he bore the brutal beatings of a Roman whip. He, he was 
flogged. He carried not bricks, but a cross up the hill. And on that cross, he was murdered. He, he understands exactly what it is we're going through. Why should you trust Jesus? Because he not only understands what it is you're going through, but he overcame it. He knows exactly what you need in order to make it through the other side. Because even though Jesus died, three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated death. And as a result of that death-conquering resurrection, he, he forgave us. He, he forgives us for every time we are feared something else other than him. He forgives us for every time we've messed up. And he gives us everlasting life if we trust him. That's why we trust him. That's why we fear him above all else. If God can take the worst evil, namely death on a cross, we can trust him in the midst of our own pain and struggles. If God can twist the cross and use it for ultimate good, he can use our suffering and our pain for ultimate good. Let me end with the words of Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be a people who trust you. God, help us to, to see that you are greater than the worst evil. There's nothing that can come our way that doesn't have to first go through your permission and Lord, there's nothing that you can't twist and turn and manipulate for our ultimate good. And so God, we, we pray we'd be um, oh, not, not just the recipients of that good news, but Lord, we'd be eager to, to share that good news with others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.